Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. As you know, this podcast is still pretty new and we are trying different things from time to time and this leads us to our guests today. Our partners Jörg Schickert and Nico Zirngiebel are joined by Jörn Bungartz. He was founder and general partner at Meisterwerk Ventures in Berlin and is now acting as an advisor for Medtech Digital Health and IT Security Ventures. And this leads us onto today's topic, which is venture capital in the life sciences and healthcare industry, particularly in Germany. The team will take a look at the market, discuss potential barriers, but also showcase opportunities. I'm going to hold the intro short. Thank you to all three for taking the time as we are hearing each other after this for some housekeeping. Let's sit down and talk the cure. Welcome to our podcast in which we will discuss venture capital in the life science industry. My name is Nicolas Zengibel. I'm a Munich-based M&A partner and a part of my focus is venture capital work. And so in the past, I've worked on a lot of financings for life science startups, both on the startup side as well as on the investor side. And uh, Jörg, we have worked together on those transactions. And exactly. may you briefly introduce you. My name is Jörg Schickert. I'm also a partner in the Munich office of Hogan Lovells. My business is to deal with life science clients exclusively, basically with regulatory, commercial, reimbursement and compliance issues. And in regard to that, whenever there is a startup setting up the business, I will assist the, the business itself, but also I assist um, investors investing in these companies. And we have also invited a further venture capital specialist with Jörn Bungartz for our podcast. Jörn, may you briefly introduce yourself, please. Yeah, my name is Jörn Bungartz and I'm in digital health and medtech for over 15 years now. Started out working with a big medtech company here in Berlin, developing monitoring system for patients there, uh, responsible for the product management, and then founded a venture builder together with five partners four years ago, which I actually left at the beginning of this year to be a freelancing consultant, if you will, in that space. And we founded two medtech startups as a product of this venture builder. I was a managing director of one of them. That's my background coming from the startup side of things when we talk about venture capital. Thank you very much, Jan. So I think in today's podcast, we wanted to talk about venture capital in the life science industry, in particular in Germany. And maybe we can start our discussion about the market and what we uh, actually see, because the venture capital scene in Germany is quite vibrant, in particular in Berlin. There are a lot of startups all in the environment of Rocket in a way, but this is very much online driven. And I think we all conclude that we see less activity in the life science market. And maybe we can discuss briefly why that is and what the challenges for both investors and targets in that sector are. So the venture capital investment is always the equity investment for a startup. And so what makes the difference, Jörn, probably from your experience compared to a tech startup or a just another Zalando, as I call it, when we talk about these online investments, what is the difference and the challenges probably for those type of investments? Yes. When we talk to, to investors to fund the startups that we built, the most common issues that we we faced was that in the first place, a lot of investors are not really familiar with all the idiosyncrasies of getting approval. They know that they have to get some kind of certification to launch a life science product or a medical device for that matter, but they don't know about the specifics. So there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, what exactly needs to be done and what they typically know and what is a big hurdle is that the time frame usually is quite long compared to other digital ventures like the ones that 
that you mentioned. So when you are talking about a typical e-commerce venture, you can be up and running from the start within, I don't know, a few months, maybe a year. But that's very uncommon, or I would say even impossible for a life science or medtech startup be ready mm -hmm. in that time yeah. frame. Even the only just the regulatory approval will take a year at least. Yeah, Jan, you're absolutely right. Only yesterday, you know, I had a client on the phone. They developed a life science product, a pharmaceutical, and he indicated that he has never seen such a swift development in, of a pharmaceutical product, but mm -hmm. still it took them five to six years to bring yeah, the product yeah. close to the market. Mm -hmm. So, and this is really swift. Usually you would talk with regard to pharmaceuticals about eight years, 10 years, even 12 years. For medical devices, it may be a little bit shorter. And also for other med tech related um, inventions, it may be a little bit shorter, but still it's quite a long time. And that is very difficult for the venture life cycle of a fund. A venture capital fund has a certain runtime and right. for example that can be five to seven years and mm -hmm. they invest and also have to divest in that period of time and if, if we talk about what you just mentioned the 10 to 12 years development cycle for certain life science products that doesn't match with the much shorter time frame or life cycle of a venture capital fund right and that is one of the main challenges the very long development cycles of the product and the mismatch to the investment horizon of the venture capital industry and the realistic window until they can divest their investment. And that is probably um, also something we should discuss. Do they always need the full cycle? So for an early stage investor mm. who really comes in on day one, what is a realistic window for the divestment? Because it's, it's fairly obvious that the realistic cycle for the entire development may be 10 to 12 years, right. but is it necessary the window until they can exit their investment? Yeah. Look, with regard to a pharmaceutical product, for example, you do not need to wait until you receive, you know, the first revenues and have the product on the market. Of course, what you need to look at is basically when will there be a significant growth in value of the product, so to say. And then probably that's the earliest time when you want to and probably need to divest. And that could be in a development of a product could be after a very important clinical trial, for example, after you have seen that the product has proof of concept or something like that, or mm -hmm. even if the, the final clinical trial has been conducted uh, and uh, successfully concluded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So that may even be before you receive the marketing approval, but still you have, of course, generated a lot of value into the product and the development and therefore divesting may be a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. Jan, what are the most natural exit channels from your perspective? Is it a sale to the big players in the industry, being the big pharmaceutical companies? Is it IPO? Is it even probably a sale to private equity or other investors? Or looking at a very long cycle, would it be possible for an early stage investor to divest, say, after three to five years in a secondary transaction to mm -hmm. a later stage mm -hmm. venture capital investor and then mm -hmm. probably to the big money investors from the US? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I think what happens most of the time, at least in medtech, is that actually startups are bought by the big players uh, in the end because uh, it's not just the regulatory hurdle that they have to take on their own otherwise, but it's also getting into the market, so building up a sales team which which, you know, in a lot of spaces still involves having people on the ground that go from clinical surgery to clinical practice and sell one-on-one. -on -one. So that's a big hurdle there as well. And to maybe flip this around, yeah, to, to look at this from a strategic perspective that the managing directors or the, the board of the startup can take is to think about this really early in the process and maybe even go for a strategy like this where it's not about penetrating the market on their own or not even maybe reaching a point where you get regulatory approval. But like you said, where you have a proof of concept or where you've shown that the technology works, 
and then aim for an acquisition by one of the big players right from the beginning. So that's a discussion that we had a lot with potential investors. So what exactly is your exit strategy? And of course, it was usually favored to go for an approach like that because, you know, it reduces the time frame from, I don't know, five to seven to 10 years, even in Metec, until you have penetrated the market sufficiently, until you have reached reimbursement agreements. That's an issue that we didn't even talk about, a big issue in MedTech. You know, when you first come into the marketplace with an innovative new product, there usually is no reimbursement for that. Unless you're a Me Too product, there's no way you can get reimbursement. So that's a big struggle to get the health insurance companies, the rest of the healthcare system to pay for your new kind of product. And to shorten that cycle, I think that can be a viable strategy even to aim for that. For secondaries, we have not seen that a lot. So we haven't reached that stage with the startup that have been responsible for yet, but uh, what we've seen from others, it really rarely happened, at least in the medtech space. Jan, with regard uh, to what you have just mentioned, I think you are absolutely right. I think that the primary objective of divesting is, I think, no longer to, you know, first have penetrated the market, get the product to uh, the market, approval and reimbursement, because in fact, it takes very, very long. And what we basically see is also that there is a psychological component, you know, when the product only has received in an early stage, proof of concept and probably is in the pivotal clinical trial, then, you know, the expectations that the product would generate huge revenues is quite is quite big. Mm -hmm. And there probably you can even achieve a better sales price for the compound, for the technology than later, because later, as you already mentioned, you know, the nitty gritty detail hurdles come up with not only approval, but reimbursement. Can you penetrate the market? Will you be able to hire salespeople and things like that? And that you can all avoid together with the heavy investment, which you need to make even in, at the late stage when you are close to the market. So I I think that's really a predominant um, strategy. Maybe one step back and uh, going back to the very beginning, what is the competition for startups in the medtech and the pharmaceutical sector? Because as looking from the outside perspective, I would expect the big pharma companies to develop the pharmaceuticals and not really the startups. So to me, it comes as a surprise that we see such many developments in startups really, and that they would only be later on acquired by the larger companies. And that is probably true for both medtech which could also be done by the Siemens of the world and the, for the pharmaceutical products by the large pharma companies. Right. Jan, do you want to start with the medtechs? I mean, it's the very old question, how to innovate when you are a big player already, because you have processes throughout your company that are built and that are streamlined to produce more of the same. So you have squeezed out all the optimization potential in your processes to make your big cruiser run as efficiently as possible. And uh, that makes it really difficult to find yeah, enclosures, if you like, of freedom in, in such an organization where you can start to think of new innovative ideas in the first place. That's why we, we see all these different approaches of the big companies setting up innovation labs and setting up uh, incubator programs to get in touch with people, with ideas, teams that work on innovative stuff, to put it that way. So that's, I think, one aspect that's really difficult for the big companies to innovate. And yeah, depending on how they are run, if this uh, is a yeah. stock corporation or if it's uh, a small board that decides, you always have to 
convince these people that this crazy idea that you came up with will really be feasible technically, that it will really be something that people want in the market. And so that's usually difficult as well. And that's why I think that for one, there's a chance for the small startups to succeed because the really innovative new ideas, they always look totally crazy in the beginning. Yeah? Nobody will believe or you know always have to think about this famous speech of uh, Steve Barmer when uh, Apple introduced the, the iPhone yeah, and, and he laughed at them because it doesn't have a keyboard. And that usually happens. And we've seen that a lot actually too. So when you propose new ideas that are really radically off what is done, usually people don't take you seriously. And so that's why I think it's good that you know there are small companies trying these things. And on the other hand, it's difficult for the big ones to do that on their own. Where do we see these startups come from? They, to a large extent, also come from the universities, where university professors or doctors have an innovation. And that's basically because they are very close to the patient, to the treatment, and that's about treating patients eventually. And they are also very close to the early research and development. And, you know, the combination of having the patients on the one side and the, in the back office, so to say, the early research and development uh, creates ideas. And this is something where big players like Big Pharma and Big Device can simply not create such an innovation environment. Do you think that the doctors you were just mentioning are reasonably aware of the opportunities of those foundations, the opportunity of setting up a startup and of the availability of funding for these startups and the availability of venture capital for their ideas? Good question. I think there are several different approaches for doctors. Some of them, they are well aware But they then also need to know that they need to do the step. They need to go out from university or from the healthcare organization and really invest all their time and for this big ticket, so to say, yeah. which is, of course, quite a move. Huh? Yeah, it's, it's getting out of the comfort zone. In a exactly, yeah. exactly. And we have just today, I, I um, drafted a license agreement for one of these doctors and they are very innovative and they know about where to get money from and how to invest. But then you also have others and they want to stay in their comfort zone, so to say, in their usual environment. And there you would only see them already very early licensing out uh, the technology in itself and not even creating and, and setting up a, a startup. But that's and, also and, a, a and, and besides, opportunity. And besides the, the technical skills these doctors have from their work, a startup requires many other skills in a way. So exactly. uh, you need a lot of knowledge about financing and you would very quickly need a CFO probably. It uh, requires knowledge about HR. and So it's not the very first skill set the founders would actually bring with into the startup right yeah, yeah. and i think you can comment on that quite uh, intensely right yeah we've seen that a lot so we have talked to a lot of research groups at university as well you know being a venture builder that was one of the approaches that we looked into picking up those ideas and uh, turning them into a startup and that's actually exactly one of the issues that we saw there that people are not even aware of all the skill sets that they need and then are really reluctant to actively look for complementary team members to work on marketing or financing or that have built a startup before or at least know their way around the venture capital space and they know how to get financing and that it's a good idea to get financing depending on, on the idea that you're following. Maybe to add to that, because that's also something that we've seen a lot is really, yeah, in some cases, outrageous conditions that some of the, the university and research institutions that we talk to apply to the IP that they have. Yeah, so they are, they are working on uh, research ideas and it looks like they can be turned into a technology uh, that can be a basis for a profitable startup. And then they are asking for, I don't know, two thirds of 
of the shares of the new company, for example, or that you will pay eternal royalties and not even uh, small ones. So that's one, one aspect that we've seen is really in the way of getting the knowledge and the really good ideas that are being developed in universities into the market and into startups. We started our discussion with the question why venture capital in the life science sector is really different compared to other industries, because we think that there are other challenges. And we discussed that there's a longer life cycle, higher costs, probably delayed exit opportunities for the investors. But if we look at the individual investment, maybe we can discuss what we think is really mission critical for the success of a venture capital investment in that sector. And in my view, it's a very thorough understanding of the product offering and the regulatory environment and the due diligence in that sector. And then very much linked to that, also understanding of the of the development cycle and where the product actually is and what a realistic exit opportunity will be and what the financing requirement is. Because if you as early stage investor invest in a series A, it's fairly obvious that further funding will be required. But the better you understand the financing requirement over the entire cycle, you can better calculate your initial investment, you can better evaluate the, the company for your initial investment. And why this is obviously not very easy to predict at this early stage, it's important. And I think, Jörg, this is also something where we can help our clients with your particular industry expertise, because that's a differentiating factor probably compared just to other VC advisors without our industry expertise. Yeah, that boils down to due diligence. And of course, I think, you know, the investors to a large extent do know what the key issues are. But when it comes then to, you know, the specific product or the specific development program, you really need to go into the specific jurisdiction because this is really a highly regulated industry. And therefore, it's not only about general compliance with anti-corruption laws and things like that when you develop something together with an industry and a an university framework, but also it's about things like the clinical trial needs to be set up in the right manner privacy needs to be abided by, the IP needs to be set up in, in the right manner so that the uh, compound or the technology is protected. And what we have seen is that the investors, they, they have a fair understanding of the general requirements for the due diligence. But when it then comes to the specific issues which could arise in the development of a program, that then they need really the specific help. So they need somebody who looks into that with the understanding of the local market, the local legal requirements, and of course, the industry knowledge in general. I think you just mentioned IP and protection of IP. And that is obviously a very important issue. Right. And if I just look at other industries where we see VC investments, you very often see various players pursuing the same idea. And it's just about who gets the largest funding and who is the most aggressive player in that market, scaling the idea quicker than others. Is that also a risk in that particular segment? So if you have an idea, say, by particular doctors from their work with the patients, and then they establish a startup and uh, seek money for this, at this stage, there's obviously no IP protection, I would expect. But do you see that there's a risk of uh, copycats and that others would like to pursue the same idea just because they think, I have heard that at the University of Munich, there was a doctor with a great idea. 
I guess that's a little bit different with regard to medical devices and medtech. In pharma, uh, we don't see that so often, to be honest. But what we see is that an invention is not only made at one university, but in collaboration with other universities. And then you have already three, four, five professors contributing to an invention. And then the question is how they set up the further protection of the IP. And some may be really, how could I put it, aggressive in following up on the idea of a startup, whereas others as we indicated, simply say, we want to stay professors, but do not want to go into the direction of a startup. And here we have seen situations where they are aligned in uh, protecting the IP, but sometimes they are not. And if you just have one inventor who doesn't want to contribute to an idea of a startup or whatever, uh, then it gets tricked. But copycatting as such is probably not so much of an issue because the technologies are so specific and, and so innovative. Do you see it the same way for MedTech? Yeah, it, it really depends. I think when you talk about software, It's a similar issue, much harder to copy in the first place. But when you talk about hardware, so medical devices like implants, for example, or diagnostics, then it really is an issue facing copycats. And that's why I think one of the first things to think about once you know which direction you are going with the technology and what works and what not, to think about really protecting your IP, patenting your technology. And that's also, I think, one of the first things Well, at least that's from my experience, what investors that we talk to, VC companies that we talk to uh, are asking for. Yeah. Do you have adequate IP protection for your technology? Thank you, Jan. Maybe we can conclude our discussion with some outlook. And the question to both of you, what would you expect to be the most exciting invention in that segment that will really change or that, that has the potential to change the world? From the pharmaceutical side, I think we see this already. These are basically the new technologies, the cell therapies and the gene therapies, where you have patients who suffer lifelong disease because they have a gene defect or something like that. And we see now therapies coming up where really patients' stem cells are taken from the patients entirely. Some of them are redesigned, are basically repaired and uh, put back into the patient. And it occurs that the patients are then healed from this lifelong disease. And that really happens quite a lot now days and that's really thrilling to be honest and is that technology also developed out of startups oh good question i do <laughs> not know where the initially idea come for, came from yeah. in these situations but there, there are certain certainly startups out there that yeah are the licensing agreement i mentioned earlier with yeah. regard to this startup in fact is also such a gene therapy and that one was developed in the university and now it's a startup and Jan, same question to you who's the next apple in the medtech sector <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't know if I could name a company there, but you were asking then, then about... Then you would be invested, I guess. Uh, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> but you asked about technology initially. And, and for me, that clearly is AI. And I know that this is a really stretched term now. Yeah, Everybody's talking about it uh, back and forth. But uh, I really see a lot of potential for it in medtech because that's what AI really is good at, you know, detecting patterns in similar data. And I think what a really great strength with AI is finding the outliers, you know, because that's a big issue with real doctors not to call any blame on anybody but it's just what happens yeah when you see 95 of people that come into your office having the common flu yeah you're more likely to not recognize this rare disease that the person sitting in front of you is having and And that's really something that AI is really good at, you know, thinking about all the options and coming up with even the, the remote diagnosis. So, yeah, that's where I see, uh, see a lot of potential in the future. Before we end, I think what we should also touch upon is Nico's expertise. And where do you see your key strength and how you could assist on the one side startup companies in uh, being set up and established, but also the investors? 
being active in the venture capital industry as a legal advisor, we mainly focus on the transaction processes, in particular on the contractual framework. So we assist both startups on the one side, but also investors on the contracts. We negotiate, we draft these contracts, we negotiate these contracts right. um, with the particular industry expertise, because whoever has seen a venture capital contract before, it's quite a complex legal framework with very specific investor protection rights and rights that relate to to first of all the investment itself, but then also govern the joint shareholding in the startup of the founders on the one side and the investor on the other, and also already include the provisions relating to the exit right. so that the investor has the opportunity to also ensure the sale of the company um, once the company gets there and has the opportunity or it relates certain rights regarding future financing and uh, who, who would have the right to trigger those rights. So that is where we actually work. Jan, where would you be specifically of, of use, Jan? Yeah, so my strong side is, is working on uh, business models that work. So finding a sweet spot between what the market needs, the physicians and the patients need and uh, what technology can do. So working on both sides there actually. So yeah, either involved in due diligence, doing the, the business model evaluations or technology evaluation, but also helping companies that are struggling with that. So Super. I'm very confident that we will all be in touch then and likely advise on our joint investment very, very soon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank all right. You. Thank you. So that's it for today. If you have further questions for Jörg and or Nico, you can find their contacts on hogenlevels.com. To reach out to Jörn, please visit bungards.pm. In addition, so you're not missing out on any information regarding industry developments as well as our activities in this sector, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter, leave a like, leave a comment and let us know what you'd like to hear next. You are going to find all links mentioned today in the description of this episode. To get to an end, please rate our content on Apple and Google Podcasts so we know we are on the right path and you like the direction we're heading. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to return with more in about two weeks. So please join us again when we are talking The Cure.